I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today, we put Wavefront to work. Wavefront technology has been kind of fun uh, in the sense that, you know, we've learned new things about old problems uh, that we really didn't understand before. That's given us a, a mathematical language to describe this enigmatic area that we, you know, we've struggled with for 50 years since we started doing transplants and more sophisticated cataract surgery um, called irregular astigmatism. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. McRae declares consulting fees from Bausch & Lomb. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Sometimes a technology so extensively generates its own language and literature that it becomes abstracted from clinical practice. With Zernike polynomials, tetrafoil, and complex astigmatism, Wavefront can seem pretty removed from patient care. In program number 26, we discuss the principles of Wavefront analysis. Today, we put those principles into practice. Scott McRae has just published the results of his study of higher-order aberrations after LASIK and their relation to postoperative visual complaints in this month's issue of Ophthalmology. Dr. McRae is my guest today. Can you tell me what higher-order aberrations are? Higher-order aberrations are aberrations that are more complex than just sphere and cylinder. Sphere and cylinder are second-order aberrations, which we call, quote, lower-order aberrations, unquote. But higher-order aberrations include more subtle and complex shapes. The most commonly known higher-order aberrations that we see in the normal population are usually coma and spherical aberration and in a, in a modest amount of trefoil. You anticipate the question that I was going to ask next, which is, are there names for these higher orders of aberration? You've mentioned some of them. You mentioned coma, which is a third-order aberration as opposed to the cylinder and sphere, which we're used to dealing with, which are second-order aberrations. And you mentioned spherical aberration, which is a fourth-order aberration. But are, are there names for aberrations higher than, than fourth-order? And are there, are there other third orders and other fourth orders too? Yeah. Um, well, the third orders are basically trefoil and coma. When you look at Zernike uh, polynomials, which are easy way to express different shapes that, that we typically see uh, with aberrations in the human eye, third, fourth, and maybe fifth order are probably the, by far and away the most common that we see. And that's based on population studies. The third-order aberrations are basically coma and trefoil and then the rotated versions of them. So when you look at a Zernike pyramid, you just look down half the pyramid. If you split it in half, um, you'd see just rotational variations of what's on the left hand of the pyramid on the right hand of the pyramid. So if you go down, let's say, to fourth-order spherical aberrations, it looks like um, sort of the reverse of a sphere, but... 
uh, it looks like a sombrero hat if you look at it away front. Um, if you look at Sphere, um, it looks like either a punch bowl if you're nearsighted, or um, it looks like an upside down punch bowl. So um, Sphere is a second order aberration. But when we look at uh, fourth order, spherical aberration is probably the most important of those fourth orders, and it's right in the center of the pyramid. Um, and then as you move out, you see um, secondary astigmatism, and then out further, you, you'll see quadrifoil. Secondary astigmatism is sort of a more high-frequency version of, of astigmatism. And then once you move into the fifth order, um, the orders actually sort of repeat themselves. You'll get things like secondary coma, other, other secondary um, forms, and then eventually um, you'll get to quadrifoil. So when you look at Zernikes, they, you know, they sort of have a repetitive nature to them, and after you've looked at them for, sometimes you just need to look at the, the figure for 10 or 15 minutes, and pretty soon you, you realize that it's, it's just repeating itself, but just with more frequency. You measured the wavefront clinically in these patients with an aberrometer. Can I have you describe what the aberrometer is that that you use for for the for the study, how it works, just sort of grossly how it works, and then the sort of data that you get from your from your aberrometer, what it looks like. We send an, a light source, um, an infrared light source, that goes into the eye, and then um, it's a laser light source that goes hits the macula, bounces back out comes through the human lens, and then comes back out through the human cornea, goes through um, a lenslet array, which is just a fancy way of saying a bunch of little lenses that are very um, uniformly arranged. Um, You can have, let's say, 100 to 200 or 300 little lenses, and then when it passes through them, uh, the light rays fall onto a CCD camera, and when you look at that CCD camera, if the wavefront is perfect, usually the light rays will sort of line up like nice little soldiers um, perfectly symmetrically. Uh, when there's aberrations present, usually you can just look at the raw lenslet data, and oftentimes you'll see a pattern of asymmetry with, with how the, the light spots arrange themselves. But say if you see sort of a pincushion type of fat, that's very typical for spherical aberration. Or if you see, in, let's say, at the bottom of, of the circle of um, light spots, there's sort of a crowding um, below that's usually typical of vertical coma. So you can literally look at just the, the raw lenslets, light spots, and actually get a feeling for whether there's um, gross aberrations present. And then by looking at, by actually taking the light spots, finding the center of each spot, which can be done with a computer program, you can determine what the wavefront is and then compare that to an idealized pattern. Um, There's actually, you know, a a deviation. Those light spots should line up, you know, perfectly symmetrically. You can measure the, the change in what you observe compared to what you know is ideal, basically calculate that out, determine the amount of wavefront. And from that, you can either design a laser treatment to correct that, or you could design a contact lens, or you could correct it out with uh, an adaptive optics mirror that is a deformable mirror uh, that would help you, let's say, if you wanted to image the retina, you could, you could also use the wavefront 
to diagnose the aberrations and then correct them out using an adaptive optics mirror. What is a point spread function? The point spread function actually um, is calculated from the wave front. I guess the simple way of saying the po- what, what the point spread function is, and what I tell patients is it's what you would see if you look at a point source of light. If you look to the star, uh, the point spread function is, is what you see. So if you see a lot of haloing, then the eye has a lot of spherical aberration. Now, the point spread function is derived from the lenslet pattern, um, which is basically used to, to calculate out the wavefront. From the wavefront, you can actually do some mathematical calculations and produce a point spread function. How do you, in the context of the exam clinically, get from the array of little pinpoint lights to some sort of a 3D surface that you can recognize as the wavefront? Basically, what you do when you once you have those raw lenslets, you just you measure the xy deviation from ideal, and then you can measure that for each individual lenslet. And by doing that, reconstructing what the what the difference is, you'll develop a pattern of wavefront error, and that wavefront error is what characterizes the wavefront. And all the Zernikes are doing is just breaking that wavefront error into into sort of component parts that are, are easier to describe. So we're, we're using the Zernike polynomials as a kind of a tool to sort of curve fit the wavefront data that, that we're getting so that we can use some language to describe uh, what otherwise looks like an uninterpretably bumpy surface. That's right. Or, or a, a, shape that, a shape that we can't, in, in normal, normal uh, language, we're unable to to describe that shape, but we can. But engineers can, optical engineers can describe that mathematically. So, and you can with a Zernike description, you can describe just about any shape, depending upon how high you want to go up in terms of the Zernike order. Let's talk about something a little bit more clinical now. Does LASIK or PRK or keratorefractive surgery generally induce higher order aberrations in asymptomatic patients? It does, but usually small amounts of higher order aberrations. Typically, conventional LASIK will induce maybe a slight amount of coma. What it typically induces is a modest amount of circular aberration, which is usually pretty well tolerated. The higher the amount of sphere that we correct, the higher the amount of circular aberration we induce using conventional treatment. We think that that's occurring basically because of some biomechanics that occur in the cornea where if we were cutting a piece of plastic, you wouldn't get that spherical aberration, but uh, because of the way that the cornea deforms after you cut collagen lamellae, so we actually do induce some higher-order aberrations doing refractive surgery. If you use too small a, a optical zone, the typical problem that people get is the induction of halos and spherical aberration. Um, if you decenter the ablation slightly and becoming less common because of the better tracking systems, but if that happens, then the patient can um, develop coma. Uh, those are probably the most common things that develop as a result of LASIK and normal eyes. Scott, can I have you describe the design of this study? We actually wanted to look at a very simple thing, and that is uh, it was actually prompted by one of the academy panels Dick Lindstrom was sitting in on and he asked a really simple question of the panelists, he, and this was about two or three years ago. I think it was about three years ago. 
he said, well, what's normal and what's abnormal? You know, it seemed kind of like a silly question initially, but um, the more I went home and thought about it, the more I thought, that's a great point. We don't know. We know what's n- normal. The group here had already defined a normal population. You know, they looked at 100 eyes and and pretty well defined, you know, that normal eyes have, have a little bit of circle aberration. That's probably the most typical aberration, higher-order aberration that they have. They have a little bit of coma, and some have a modest amount of, of trefoil. None of these are usually enough to really cause severe debilitation, but they are some in some patients, uh, about probably 30 to 40% of the population, they have difficulty with night driving, things like that. Uh, and they're walking around with moderate amounts of aberration. Um, but it's not clinically disabling in, in the way that we think of uh, a post-transplant eye or a, a post-LASIK eye that is really bothersome for patients. And so what we did is we asked, well, what is abnormal? What's the threshold for higher-order aberration where patients start having difficulty seen uh, to the point where they're unhappy with their refractive surgical result. The other part of that is that it can't be corrected out with a simple sphere and, and cylinder correction or, quote, lower order aberration correction, which is what we've been, you know, we've been doing that for 200 years. Uh, and so we looked at a group of patients that had symptoms. We looked at 33 symptomatic eyes, looked at the patterns that they had, and our interest was in finding out what what features were were more common, which types of aberrations were more um, problematic. Um, I should say that you know at the same time that we were doing this work, um, Dave Williams at the University of Rochester, uh, who, who's a basic scientist that that helped develop this entire field of um, of wavefront technology, um, was also working on trying to define a metric that would help clinicians kind of rank the amount of higher order aberration and uh, allow us to, um, to to look at, let's say, a higher order aberration pattern and say, oh, well, this is going to be much more disabling than, than a different pattern. We, we learned um, fairly quickly um, through David's work that, that um, when you put a person on an adaptive optic system where you can simulate, literally you can, you can take a person uh, put them on an optical system uh, where you can measure the wavefront error, just like we do with a wavefront sensor. But with Dr. Williams's adaptive optic system, he could literally correct out your aberration uh, on the system, and then he used it to look at get very excellent imagery of the retina. But you can also use it to um, get the very best vision that you can get from people um, and correct, essentially correct them out uh, so that they're aberration-free. Well, when we actually induce aberrations um, with this system, what Dr. Williams did with his group is um, took a group of patients, completely eliminated their aberration in the in the adaptive optic system, and then they would actually induce it aberrations and tell them to look at an E or a, a different target uh, to rate that subjectively and see how disabling it was. What he found was basically that um, some aberrations are much more disabling than others. And Reapplegate did similar studies using a different technique, but basically found you know, the same findings. And that is that, um, that 
the aberrations that are in the center of the Zernike pyramid, such as spherical aberration or coma or secondary coma, which are all sort of in the center of the pyramid, those aberrations are much more disabling. So what we tried to do based on this information was um, to look at the patterns and then um, the patterns of higher order aberration and then find out which ones were more disabling and also what sort of the threshold is for uh, the amount of wavefront error that one has to have before you start becoming symptomatic and you can't correct it out with spectacle correction. Scott, how does the pupil size affect the wavefront error? Well, that's an interesting question. We looked at that and um, published on that. Um, but basically, if you have a five millimeter pupil, you'll have as as the pupil dilates for every millimeter in diameter it dilates, it roughly doubles. So if you have, let's say, 0.2 microns of wavefront error with a five millimeter pupil, um, there's about a two-fold increase when the pupil goes from five millimeters to six millimeters. Um, so if you were at 0.2 with a five millimeter pupil, you'd be at 0.4 with a six millimeter pupil. And if your pupil dilates it to a seven millimeter diameter, you'd have twice what you'd have with 0.6, which would be 0.8. So as the pupil dilates, the higher order aberration RMS values tend to go, uh, tend to double for every millimeter of dilation. What that means is that these higher order aberrations um, become much more profound in sort of magnitude as the pupil dilates. The greatest benefit of correcting higher order aberration is not in visual acuity based on um, work in Dr. Williams' lab and others. It's an improving contrast under low light conditions. So as the pupil dilates, you're more sensitive. If you have lots of higher order aberration, you'll be much more sensitive to um, the pupil dilating in low light conditions where there's not as much contrast. That being said, you know I think what we found over the years is that if you do treat with an adequate optical zone, let's say uh, greater than six millimeters to 6.5, the likelihood of people having you know, some of these smaller optical zones and, and uh, lots of aberration starts decreasing. So pupil size you know, does have a pretty profound impact on higher order aberration, and you can minimize you know, the disability of uh, higher order aberrations by uh, constricting the pupil. A lot of people are placed on alpha-GAN or alpha-GAN-P, if they have problems with night driving. Your study looked at three patient populations, one group of patients who were not treated, one group of patients who had had LASIK and were not symptomatic, and one group of patients who had had LASIK and, and had symptoms. What did your study find? We found that people that had uh, symptoms tended to have uh, larger amounts of higher-order aberration. They tended to have uh, roughly two to three times the amount of RMS wavefront error, or what we call higher-order aberration, than the, than the post-LASIK asymptomatic population, or um, probably about three times as much RMS wavefront error as a um, untouched virgin eye that hasn't had any kind of refractive surgery. That's sort of a simplified way of, of saying, you know, that they do have more higher-order aberration. You know, I think that that's helpful uh, is sort of a, a very simple, and, and, and frankly, you know, over the next few years, we'll probably look back at it as a, you know, as a crude measure, but it's, you know, it's a first step in terms of understanding 
you know, the amounts of higher order aberration that you know, people have when they're symptomatic. So the magnitude of the symptoms seems to correlate with the magnitude of the higher order aberrations. Yeah. And one of the problems that we have, this comes back to this whole issue of RMS wavefront error. Well, RMS wavefront error is just sort of a, it measures the sort of the, the deviation from uh, a planar wavefront. In other words, if there's elevation or depression below that planar wavefront, it'll measure it all the same. But there's no ranking to it. Uh, and we know, based on the studies that Dave Williams' group did and, and Ray Applegate uh, and others, we know that, that certain aberrations are more disabling. So we know that RMS probably is not the best metric. And some of the other metrics that, that relate to probably the tightness of the fit of the point spread function uh, are probably better metrics than, than RMS. Currently, most people, when they talk about wavefront error, they're, they're, you know, the main vocabulary that we use or the main metric that we're using is RMS wavefront error. Which is root, root mean squared distance between the measured wavefront and a perfect planar wavefront. Right, right. It's root mean square error. Do specific patient symptoms correlate with specific wavefront errors? I mean, we, we've, you've, you've shown us that patients are more symptomatic when there are more wavefront errors, and even that they're more symptomatic with particular sorts of wavefront errors. But are there specific symptoms that patients have that correlate with specific wavefront errors? Yeah. Um, um, Ron Kruger and his group um, did look at that and did a really nice paper on that, basically showing that there are certain correlations. People that tend to have haloing tend to have circlaboration. People that tend to have... Uh, star bursting or um, sort of a smearing image tend to have halo. And so um, even the subjective complaints that patients have can correlate with um, what we're measuring objectively with the wavefront sensor. The question that I just asked was whether certain symptoms correlate with certain wavefront errors. What I'm going to ask now is whether certain corneal topographic errors correlate with certain wavefront errors. Yes. We, we found that um, one of the interesting things we found was um, if you have a baby bow tie pattern uh, on corneal topography, uh, you'll tend to have secondary astigmatism, which if you think of it makes a lot of sense because uh, astigmatism is sort of a bow tie, but if you have a higher frequency version of it, which is basically what secondary astigmatism is, uh, and, it, and it's reasonably symmetric, then you'll have um, a baby bow tie pattern on topography. There were other patterns also. Um, you could you could see um, sort of a very heavy red ring pattern that typically on topography that typically is associated with circle aberration. Uh, you can also have a lot of um, one of the other typical patterns that one sees is a lot of redness on topographies inferiorly, and that's usually correlated with with horror, or with vertical coma, we one one pattern that was interesting uh, was the Central Island pattern. We tended to find uh, uh, a lot of coma in those individuals, and um, as well as spherical aberration. You found more spherical aberration in more symptomatic patients. Where where do you think that this spherical aberration is coming from? Now, granted, 
Wavefront doesn't specify the anatomical source of the aberration, but where where would you speculate um, that this spherical aberration is coming from? Um, I think that most of the spherical aberration has been coming from older generation lasers. Uh, patients were treated with relatively smaller optical zones and um, not as much transition zone as the current generation of lasers uh, tends to treat with. So, um, you know, if you were treated with an old, older generation summit, the treatment zone was six millimeters and there was no transition zone. So you'd see these really abrupt transitions. And if the ablation was decentered even slightly, the patients would end up sort of looking through the edge of the ablation uh, as their pupil dilated at night. And that could be real um, bothersome to patients. Now, granted, they're telling us different things, but do you think that Wavefront is better at predicting patient complaints than topography is? It depends upon the problem. Topography, actually, the two together are actually very, very helpful uh, in dealing with these complicated patients. For instance, if you have a very, very um, subtle or very uh, fine central island, the wavefront sensor will probably pick that up, but it won't articulate it nearly as well as a, as a really um, fine topographer. Um, on the other hand, some topographers don't, you know, they don't measure very well at the center of the apex of the cornea. Uh, but most of the time, topographers have so many, so many sampling points that you can almost give a more detailed picture of the irregularity um, just by looking at topography. But, but the other thing about wavefronts is that they can show you these complex patterns in, in a way that uh, you can, you can after, after you look at these patterns for a while, you can look at them and say, well, this is, you know, this is obviously coma, or trefoil, or uh, spherical aberration. So the wavefront is easier, I think, when you're looking when you're looking at these patterns. The wavefront sensing uh, system allows you to more easily sort of categorize uh, the pattern. The topographer can be used to to sort of qualify that um, that pattern in the sense that you can look at very very fine details. Some of these, you know, some of the topographers are sampling 1,800 to, you know, thousands of points, whereas a wavefront sensor, depending upon the number of lenses it has, will sample anywhere between 80 and uh, maybe 800 at max maximum. Uh, so you, you don't get as many sampling points from a, a wavefront sensor as you do a topographer. Um, and, and the other thing that's a limitation of wavefront sensors is that they don't measure outside the pupil, so that you get no idea of what the ablation pattern is outside the pupil. Uh, if the patient's pupil doesn't dilate beyond five millimeters, well, you get no information beyond five millimeters. Whereas with a topographer, you can see pretty much the central eight or nine millimeters, which is really where most of the laser treatment's going in and most of the shape changes occurring. So the two can be used very well synergistically. Scott, are there patients with certain preoperative wavefront or topographic findings that when you see it that you think, well, maybe I, I shouldn't be doing LASIK on this patient? Yeah, I think that well, you know one of the great things about the evolution of our specialty is we just got much more sophisticated about how to handle these people. Um, if somebody has a lot of asymmetry, 
you know, the first thing that happens is, you know, we go back and look at their topographies. Um, I use the orb scan, but there, you know, there now are two units, the, the Pentacam, which in the orb scan that allow you to look at both the anterior and posterior elevation maps. And if the, you know, if there is posterior ectasia or a lot of elevation posteriorly, the uh, orb scan or Pentacam allow you to to pick that up. In those types of patients, we um, treat differently. I, my tendency is not to treat with those patients with LASIK if they have very minor, very small amounts of refractive error, let's say one or two diopters. I think it's reasonable to go ahead and treat them with surface ablation um, if you're convinced that they are not a form for us keratoconus. If there are, um, there are even individuals that are treating form for us keratoconus as now, um, Dave Harden's group in Minneapolis uh, reported uh, at Ascaris, a group of patients that were successfully treated with surface ablation uh, and have been stable. Uh, Gustavo Tamayo in Bogota has been treating these types of patients. So um, by by using corneal topography and using wavefront, you can screen patients that have form fresh keratoconus type uh, characteristics and uh, and and move away from LASIK. Uh, you can think about other alternatives uh, other than LASIK in, in these individuals. Uh, fake it guy wells or simply um, keeping them into their contact lenses. Some of these individuals may do well with uh, intracorneal rings as well. Scott, have the findings of this study changed the way that you practice? It, they have. It actually has helped me be more definitive about um, how I look at higher order aberration. If somebody has has refractive surgery and um, they're complaining a lot about their subjective symptoms, and let's say they have only a higher order aberration that's, let's say, twice as much as what you'd normally see in the population. Uh, let's say they go from, uh, with the Zywave system, um, a normal population has about a 0.4 microns of RMS wavefront error with a 6 millimeter pupil. Well, if the patient went from 0.4 to 0.6 millimeters, and they're complaining bitterly of, of you know, night symptoms, the first thing I would look at would be uh, not so much their higher-order aberration, but just looking at their sphere and cylinder and, and maybe refracting them a lot more closely to see um, if that's what's causing the problems. And if that's still not solving their um, problem, I'd be looking very closely, you know, with a slip lamp, looking at the uh, human lens, and also looking uh, at their retina to see if they have a epiretinal membrane or some other source of visual problem. I, you know, I think that you know we're getting a handle on some of these metrics better, so that we can be more concrete with patients uh, in terms of, you know, is is this abnormal? Is it the higher order aberration that's causing the problem, or is it some other um, source of the problem, such as a lens problem or a retinal problem? Scott, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Enjoyed um, talking with you. Scott McRae is professor of ophthalmology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and professor of visual science at the Center for Visual Science in Rochester, New York. 
his paper, Higher Order Aberrations in Eyes with Irregular Corneas After Laser Refractive Surgery, appears in the October 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will... Of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. McRae or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646 Eight zero eight zero two three one in the United Kingdom dial zero two zero seven five five eight eight two seven five or Skype J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young. <laughs>